What's up, everyone? I am back with another episode of Brown Girl Green here at the Aspen Ideas Climate Festival in Miami. I'm so excited to be joined with our guest, who is an incredible leader in the energy sector, a fellow content creator, and I would love for her to introduce herself. Thank you so much for having me. My name is McKenna Dunbar, and I consider myself a climate solutionist, first and foremost, and an environmental justice advocate. I believe in the intersection of environmental justice and approaching the clean energy transition, making sure that the transition is not only accessible, not only is it affordable, but it's available for institutionally underserved populations across the country. I specifically focus on Virginian communities, rural Virginian communities with the Sierra Club. I'm the building electrification lead and one of their energy organizers there. So I'm happy to be here and thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, so, you know, you just mentioned that you work on electrification projects. Can you define for people who don't know what that means, what that work looks like at Sierra Club? Yes, of course. Building electrification refers to the shift away from fossil fuel powered systems and appliances in the built environment, whether it be residential, commercial, or industrial, to those sourced by renewable energy resources. And so it really entails increasing the quality of the indoor air and making sure that every resident has safe and comfortable clean air. That's really what it boils down to. Wow, that's amazing. You know, I want to know a little bit more on like, what have been some of like, the challenges of your work? Like, just it sounds like being able to do things like a just transition of being able to support people in that must come with its challenges, but also I'm sure some of its you know major wins and successes. Should you dive a little bit more into that? So with the rural communities that I work with in Virginia, one of the recent projects that I've been able to initiate and lead with these communities is called a building electrification education module. And these are in tandem with green workforce development training programs that really make sure that disadvantaged communities in Virginia are able to be a part of the clean energy transition through professional development and solar PV installation and energy auditing 101. And this is done in conjunction with an amazing CBO and organization called Bridging the Gap in Virginia, led by Richard Walker and also with the community C5, Concerned Citizens for Charles City County. There's a plethora of issues that rural communities face across Virginia that aren't even energy justice oriented. These include issues of access to broadband internet. And as we both know, for as being content creators, the internet is a powerful tool of engagement and learning. And when individuals and residents from a certain community don't have accessible access to internet, it makes it really hard for them to find out information related to permitting projects, fossil fuel infrastructure projects like compressor stations and pipelines that are going to impact their health and going to impact their livelihood and the communities that they are part of. So that's one of them. There's also, for example, in Charles City County, it's a small rural community of 6,500 individuals, majority minority community in Virginia, just 50 minutes outside of Richmond, Virginia, where I'm based. And they're facing water quality issues from Virginia's first mega landfill, in addition to 
having faced permitting concerns with a compressor station and pipelines as well. So once you stack all of those social inequities, it's really a cause for concern. And I think it speaks to why the nexus of environmental justice and the clean energy transition is so relevant. It's not just approaching clean energy related topics, it's water quality, it's air quality, it's waste management even. Yeah, I mean, I think the work that you're doing is you know, really powerful in that way because you're meeting communities where they're at. You're not just shaming people about not knowing what's going on. You're actually like helping build the resources and the pathways to support them in that journey because it must not just be like, okay, it's going to be the switch overnight. It's going to be like this gradual process. And you want to give those communities the agency and the ability to be a part of that process as well. So that, that's awesome. You know, I wanted to know a little bit more about your work, you know, in the energy sector. Like what got you into this space? Like who are some of the people that influenced you or inspired you to want to work on climate in this way? First and foremost, the woman who inspires me most in this sector is my mentor, Dr. Mary Finley Brook. She is such a powerhouse. She not only works on regional and statewide Virginia environmental justice issues, mainly in the clean energy and climate sector, but she works on international levels as well. She is a professor of geography and the environment at University of Richmond. She is on many boards. She is a community organizer. She has really lit a fire in me related to environmental justice and is the reason that I even know about the word environmental justice. I am also inspired by individuals like Jamal Lewis from Rewiring America, Mm -hmm. Shalonda Baker, um, Sharonda Tack, who formerly was at Sierra Club, and Rose Stephens Booker. And these are individuals who really motivate and inspire me. I got into the climate clean energy sector through my passion for social justice and just my interest in the natural world and plant morphology. I was actually a moss and lichens researcher. Okay, uh, that's cool. <laughs> freshman year before COVID turned everything around, but I would say that my passion for climate as a whole, less so the less so the more minute aspects of, yeah. you know, the clean energy transition came about at an early age when I was growing up from 4th grade to 11th grade. I was part of a traveling robotics team and we raced cars and competed against other robots all across the country. (laughs) Thank you. It was a great experience, but one of the projects that we did inspired a research project on Hurricane Katrina and its disproportionate impacts on communities of color and Black communities specifically. And through our investigations, we learned about how disproportionately these communities were impacted by the aftermath of, you know, the crisis while the crisis was also taking place. And so with that information, we devised this sort of building project. It was a solar resiliency neighborhood hub. We called it a solar toll booth. And Mm -hmm. if you imagine, you know, the red London toll booths, think of that. But instead of it being metal, it would be built out of a wood and metal structure that had battery storage, that had solar panels, that had medical supplies, that had food and other equipment to ensure that a small neighborhood community for at least four to five days would have accessibility and safety tools 
in times of natural disaster. So that ignited my initial passion in, in what I now presently know as environmental justice. But at that time, it was just thinking about disproportionate impact for communities of color. And that's what landed me in my work today, in addition to the support from individuals like Dr. Mary Finley Brook and others who have really supported me along the way. Wow, that's like such a cool story. It, it's one of those things where it's like you didn't necessarily go into it as like a quote unquote climate person. You you did it from, you know, a space of social justice, which I deeply resonate with. I didn't get into the space necessarily, you know, all about the environment. I also came from a space of thinking about human rights, communities, um, and just feeling like it wasn't right that certain communities were getting access to resources versus others. So your story deeply resonates with me and I wish I did robots when I was younger. That sounds so cool. I'm like, what the heck? You also, you know, are a budding and awesome content creator who's trying to bring energy to bigger audiences. And, you know, we don't always see content creators, especially content creators of color, necessarily talking about these issues that can sometimes feel like a lot of mundane or, you know, a little boring because <laughs> it can be a little technical. technical. And it's one of those things where, like, obviously you have a lot of passion. So, of course, you're going to bring that fire into this space that can be very technical a little dry but i want to know a little bit more on like how do you approach that like how did you now that you're more deeper into like that technical policy space how are you still connecting those lines from your passion that you've had over this time to channel that into content to educate people about these issues great question and i agree with you working in the energy sector things can get very technical and mundane very quickly and because the space is inundated and flooded with engineers and architects and building designers and individuals whose entire career are dedicated to the numbers and the math and the policy aspects, it's hard to it's hard for the general public to really understand in the minutiae and the details of the information. I think that for me, in order to make energy more compelling and more accessible. I really focus on creating a narrative around the fundamental nature of environmental justice mm. and social justice, like we mentioned earlier, connecting those topics, because those are the things that are more relevant for people. When I think about energy justice, I think about energy burden. Mm. Everyone across America, if they are able to be in a house, they usually have to pay utility bills and energy bills. And what we've seen you know, over the past year and a half and know for many years now but it's especially relevant in the media related to the increased you know rate of utility bills and energy bills people are spending more of their salary on their electricity bill and that is impacting the, their livelihood in the way that they're able to spend their money elsewhere and so when I try to communicate energy justice and more technical aspects of the clean energy transition especially with heat pumps and and other technologies that are in the media space right now, especially because of RRA, Inflation Reduction Act, I like to connect it back to homeowners. I like to connect it back mm. to the individual. I like to connect it with storytelling because I think storytelling is a great tool in order to connect with bridging the gap between the common American who's not you know, well-versed in clean energy topics because that's not a concern of theirs right. because they're busy with more important and relevant things that are taking place in their daily lives 
to these more technical aspects of the clean energy transition. I like making different forms of content, long form, short form posts. I mainly post on LinkedIn. Check her out. Check her out on LinkedIn. It's good stuff. Thank you. And <laughs> right now I'm venturing more into creating video content because that's more appealing. I mean, you're you're the queen of video content <laughs> yourself, but it's more appealing to audiences. And I'm trying to make storytelling in the clean energy transition more accessible to there's not a lot of people of color creating content about clean energy like you were saying earlier and there aren't many young people of color doing so and yeah. so that's why I really appreciate the work that you're doing and I hope you know that you're a source of inspiration for me and so many others oh my god thank you so much no I mean I just think it's really cool to see people especially young people of color you know taking up that space and being able to tell these stories because it's like you know we could talk about what from what I've seen in the mainstream media, there's one discussion of the energy transition. It doesn't necessarily include communities of color. It'll maybe mention, okay, it's important for minorities, you know, we're creating economic benefits, but it's like, what are the challenges there? How are we communicating that story? What are the nuances? And I feel like it's much better coming from someone who actually like deeply understands the issues that those communities face instead of just being another statistic that's put into another solar report. <laughs> Anyways, moving on from that, you know, you made a post actually, because I find your LinkedIn post very interesting. And I don't fully always know things about energy. Like I worked in solar, like I did some stuff there, but like, I'm not like, I feel like you're like steeped, you know what I mean? So something I saw you post about on LinkedIn was that something in the 70s was called the sick building syn syndrome. We know it came from buildings getting too wet and not having enough indoor air piped in. And you said, it is said with the IRA heat pump incentives, we will see a resurgence of that happening. Can you touch more upon that? Because I don't know half of what any of that meant. <laughs> of course. So to break down the sick building syndrome that was coined in the 1970s, it was a phenomena that was taking place across office buildings. And users and individuals who were in the office buildings experienced allergy-related symptoms like runny nose, coughing, shortness of breath, chest pains, and things that mimicked flu and other sickness symptoms. And so with sick building syndrome, when those individuals left those, you know, indoor spaces, their indoor office areas, they immediately felt relief. And a lot of that can be attributed to mold and <clears throat> other building illnesses. And there's not an exact reason that sick building syndrome occurs. It's just general discomfort and not having appropriate controls inside a building. And when we think about heat pumps in this present state, especially with the Inflation Reduction Act being at the forefront of many people's minds, not everyone's minds, but in clean energy transition, all we can talk about is RA, RA, RA incentives. We have to think about the matter of the specific heat pumps that don't necessarily have humidity controls, mm. that don't have proper filtration mechanisms, a part of this technology. And, you know, back in the 70s and, you know, decades following, the air conditioners really prioritized hum dehumidification. That was, I believe, 40% of you know, the total output for air conditioners and 60% was focused on cooling. Yeah. 
there's a trade-off with heat pumps because in the present day, a very energy efficient heat pump, you know, outputs, you know, the entire output is 90% cooling with 10% dehumidification. So mm-hmm. the resurgence of sick building syndrome can be attributed to low cost and less technologically advanced heat pumps. There are many heat pumps specifically with train one of the train technologies versions of heat pumps that uses communication systems and it takes the humidification and the actual heat away from the initial flow of air that is being pumped outside of the house into the house and then it reheats that air so not only will that humidity get taken out it will be heated and then it will cause increased well-being and comfort in the home and you know heat pump technologies it's most people don't know how that system works i think just in one sentence heat pumps don't produce heat or cold it transfers heat from one space to another so in times where you want the indoor environment to be heated you're going to take the heat from the outside just very simple. I'm not going to go yeah. like too in depth in it. Keep it very. Yeah. The heat is captured outside through coils and then is pressed into the indoor air environment. And then the reverse happens. If you want to keep the indoor environment um, cooler, the heat is transferred out of the indoor environment through cools and that heat is released into the outdoor environment. And so when we think about sick building syndrome, we need to not only think about the actual heat pumps, we need to think about the well-being of the built environment of the structure before these heat pumps are added. Because, you know, a few years ago, I started working in energy auditing through a large grant I received from Davis Projects for Peace with a partner, India Woodfolk. And what we noticed when doing anthropological research across Portsmouth, Virginia, which is an institutionally underserved community in Hampton Roads, which is the largest group of Americans across the country, retrofitting is very important and weatherization is very necessary. So if you have a heat pump and you don't necessarily have proper insulation and windows that are properly ventilated and other aspects of ducts and airflow, the heat pump won't necessarily be the most effective. So I think we need to look at the full envelope of the building's well-being before we think about electrification. And I think that's one step of bridging environmental justice alongside the clean energy transition, because those who are likely to experience lack of weatherization, lack of retrofitting more are institutionally underserved communities. And those who can't afford to do these big overhauls of electrification across their rented home or, you know, purchased home. Right. So it's like in a way, like with the clean energy transition, you can't just like pop something in there and just be like, okay, here's this technology when it's like, you're not even addressing like how these communities have been like disinvested in or like if that solution can even work in the long term or is that going to actually create like more co-harms rather than co-benefits. I think it's really important because I think, you know, whether that be like, you know, pushing people out of quote unquote jobs or maybe like, like you're saying, like you could provide one solution, but then if you don't think about like, you know, the bigger picture, then it's going to lead to these other problems down the line. All of these things, you know, show us that as we're trying to create, you know, a more renewable energy, you know, driven world and all these things, that communities need to be at the forefront and center of that conversation. That makes total sense to me. 
this is obviously a very white male dominated field, the energy sector. You know, I love my solar people. I love my solar bros. But at the same time, like, there's not a lot of people who look like you or me in those spaces. So I'm just wondering, you know, this is called Brown Girl Green. And I'm always trying to give people advice on how do you navigate a sector like that to take up that space, to be able to, you know, assert yourself as an expert. Obviously, you know, having your platform on LinkedIn and, you know, the work you've done at Sierra Club is giving you a pretty big platform to start having those conversations. But I want to know a little bit deeper, like from your own insights, how have you navigated that? First and foremost, I think the way that I've navigated it most effectively is instilling confidence in myself actively and subconsciously every single day. I think developing confidence and taking the steps to become a better advocate for yourself Mm -hmm. and a better communicator is really important, even if you don't feel comfortable doing so. I've had to lean into vulnerability many times. I would say weekly, every week of me being, you know, at Sierra Club and being a part of these white dominated spaces because you have to be your own best friend at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And your best friend would want you to advocate for yourself, would want you to make your boundaries known and communicate on the topics that you feel inspired and driven by. And so one of the things I have noticed, of course, this is quite obvious, but with conferences and you know the types of panels and the panelists and the speakers that you know, clean energy sector oriented and electrification sector oriented conferences, there's a there's a very evident lack of diversity. Mm-hmm. And it, it really angers me because it's a form of greenwashing uh, with the the lead organization stating, you know, they promote diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, all the buzzwords. Mm-hmm. I was just having this conversation with someone from another clean energy organization and it frustrated us because it's an act of tokenism. Mm. They're actively placing tokenism on people of color who are either attending because they're a professional and an expert in the space or because they're invited to go there. And so, you know, if you have one panel out of the entire conference that, you know, have two people of color, that's not adequate. That's not enough. Mm-hmm. You can't espouse values of justice without having it in practice. And again, that's where the topic of environmental justice comes in. If you use buzzwords, if you, you know, venture into actions of tokenism, you're you're being a fraud. Mm-hmm. And as we shift more into the clean energy transition, it's not just about the more technical aspects of that clean energy transition and the technologies and, you know, the workforce of it. We need to think about more holistic changes and that's rooted in how can we implement social justice? How can we address how we as humans collaborate, how we even think about the concept of clean energy, who is benefiting from it, who is being left behind. And the topic of environmental justice centers around three aspects, procedural justice, distributive justice, and another type of justice that focuses on impacts of communities of color and making sure that they're the table. They're not at the table. They're they're the table. Their lived experiences are what needs to shape how this entire clean energy transition is handled. I'm a proponent and many and people in the environmental justice space are a proponent of 
addressing the concerns of institutions disadvantaged communities first before we get into the middle upper income communities because they're going to be left behind if we don't do that and that is why you know there there are a lot of issues with the inflation reduction act and i'm one to bring that up and i know other people are as well and so with you know these discrepancies with ira i am very excited about the consumer tax credits and you know ensuring that communities of color especially low income communities and low income americans as a whole are able to access 100% of their retrofitting and weatherization costs covered in other mm-hmm. technologies and i'm very excited about the actual implementation phase of inflation reduction act i'm a bit concerned about how organized it will be and the communication and advocacy between, you know, federal and state jurisdictions and advocacy organizations like, you know, Sierra Club and others that are working on the various aspects of Inflation Reduction Act, but I am excited nonetheless. Yeah, no, Um, and I'm really glad you brought up about, you know, consumer tax credits because I don't think a lot of people even know that's a thing or like it's just, you know, there's going to be a lot more you know, public service announcements and education on that. But like, we need to like break down these topics. And like, that was brought up to me by like my mentors. They're like, you need to educate people about this. And they're like, you gotta make IRA sexy and stuff like that to make it accessible, right? Because like our communities are only gonna benefit from that if we're also sharing that information. So it's like, we can have critiques, of course, of the IRA, but we also have to know how we can leverage it with what we're being given also and communicate about it or else like none of us are going to get to reap the benefits and it's going to end up being a transition that's not centering communities that need it the most so we we as bridge builders and storytellers are the ones that are going to need to like do that extra legwork (laughs) that the government might be a little bit too messy to handle you know we're wrapping up here but i you know i absolutely loved having you on here and you know i'm sure there's going to be a lot of people listening that like want to learn more about you know, consumer tax credits, maybe we can start there as a resource, but do you have other resources, things you go to, things you read to keep up to date on, you know, this just transition, clean energy transition that people can check out? One of my favorite ways of accessing information are through podcasts. And so the the, irony of it all, uh, the irony of it all, I would say the big shift is one of them, the energy terminal clean power hour and it's not just focused on clean energy heavy tech related things it's focused on holistic understandings of the clean energy transition and also addressing the more technical aspects i would also say that one of the things that i really enjoyed doing over covid as everything transitioned online and you know i was 18 when covid happened and 19 and this was before i got my job and had many internships and, and fellowships in the clean energy sector what i would love to do is attend department of energies or rmi or iaee which is the international association for energy economics they would host monthly webinars mm. on a fun clean energy energy econ just adjacent topic and those one hour 45 minute sessions I would learn so much and I would remember the narratives that they shared, which were both addressed the technical aspects, but also addressed how this is relevant to the present day and not Mm -hmm. just what's taking place in the United States, because I think it's important to have a global understanding of the clean energy transition and seeing how 
the economics works with the policy and how the policy works with organizing and how the organizing works with business development mm. and how the business development works with tech mm-hmm. acceleration and innovation. And podcasts and webinars are great. And also I would look into reports, quarterly reports or annual reports that are generated by large clean energy advocacy and think tank organizations. They really do break, like RMI and Anointed K-12 and organizations of that nature really break down topics of clean energy and electrification in a comprehensive and accessible way. And that has allowed me to advance my own understandings about clean energy transition and then connect them with my own values rooted in environmental justice. Wow. No, thank you for that slew of resources. I hadn't heard about any of those, so that's fantastic. I mean, of course, you know, I'm like a tangential girl in that space, but like I really, I really want to dive deeper. So thank you so much for putting me on to some of those resources. And to wrap it up, how can people stay in touch with you and your amazing work? Obviously, she's a star on LinkedIn. Check her out on LinkedIn. But anything else you want to plug or any projects upcoming that you'd like to plug? One of the upcoming projects that I'm venturing into is creating a tea series surrounding climate conversations. Okay. I'm a I'm a big tea person. I I'm a big fan of tea. I have tea every single I'm a day. Tea girl too. You're a tea girl too. We never talked about this. Yeah, we never okay. hibiscus oolong tea is my favorite. Ooh. My favorite. But I right now I host bi monthly tea sessions where we, this is not clean energy related, but where we talk about poetry. I'm a big fan of American literature and we have (laughs) a group of 15 to 20 of my friends join me quite often to talk about poetry, but these climate conversations that I'm hosting, a climate grief circle, if you will, will really delve into how the climate crisis is impacting us and how we're being impacted by externalities around the world. You can also follow me on Instagram at McKenna Dunbar, and you can connect with me on Twitter as well if you search my name. So thank you again. Yeah, no, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for just like, you know, as being a young person of color, you know, joining the ranks of so many people, you know, that have carved paths for you to move forward the sector and to be a leading voice and fully get it, just like understand how to center communities in this energy transition. I mean, they're so lucky to have your leadership and I'm so grateful to have had you on the show. You know, I was interviewed by her a couple months ago and I was like, wait, her energy's fire. Then I went on her LinkedIn and I was like, wait, She's like deep in the energy sector. And I was like, she's a young person just like me. And for me, like just meeting other young people like yourself is just like so inspiring because it's like we are the future. And we're, we're literally building roadmaps and pathways that just have never existed before. So, you know, we're in it together. And I'm so grateful to, you know, document this part of both of our journeys. So thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for doing another episode of Brown Girl Green. I'm out here in Miami gathering some amazing stories. It's been a great time. And yeah, so make sure you subscribe to the Brown Gold Green podcast where I interview diverse environmental leaders and advocates about the importance and joy and hope of climate solutions happening all around the world. Make sure you subscribe and listen to the Brown Gold Green podcast wherever you get your shows and follow me at Brown Girl underscore green and the new Brown Girl Green podcast Instagram, which is at the Brown Girl Green podcast. Thanks so much and catch you on the next one.